Let me uh, read a scripture from 1 Samuel 2. The Lord gave me this two weeks ago. Russia had not invaded Ukraine at that juncture. And I was going to preach, just in Charlotte, Rachel, know this. I was going to preach on the kingdom. And the Lord, when I sat down in my study a few weeks ago, said, turn to 1 Samuel. But why is he taking me to 1 Samuel? I'm trying to pre- prepare a message on the kingdom. And then it, it became clear to me why as I prepared. Before we read 1 Samuel 2, let me remind those who've not read or, or, or tell those who've not read 1 Samuel 1 what goes down in that passage. 1 Samuel 1 is one of my favorite Old Testament stories about a barren woman, Hannah, who cannot have a baby. Her husband, Elkanah, loves them, but he partic- his wives, Peninnah and Hannah, but he particularly loves Hannah. It's, it's, he gives double portions to Hannah of, 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 of what he has. Hannah's rival, Peninnah, provokes Hannah in the story and kind of proudly says, look what I've achieved. Look at my sons. Look at my children. Look what I've got. And Hannah's grieving. And it says in the scriptures, year after year, Elkanah would take his family up to worship God. And all the time, there's this heartbroken woman in the center of the story saying, God, when am I going to have a baby? And the beautiful uh, culmination of chapter one is she's promised God if he'll give her a baby... He, she will give the baby to God. So we end chapter one with this remarkable end point where <clears throat> Hannah gives her son to God. Now, those of you who've had children, can you imagine you've just had a baby, you've weaned the child? You take your child to the priest and say, there you go, he's for the service of the Lord. I mean, I could not imagine that stuff. There you go. He's yours now. Do you see the love for God in Hannah? Do you you see that? How deeply Hannah loved God. She even gave a long-awaited child to the Lord's service. And when we do a dedication service, it just shows how potent that actually is. And so we enter into now chapter 2 where Hannah has a prophetic praise song. It's rather reminiscent of a lot of the women in the Bible who praise and prophesy as they're praising. I think of Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, where she's praising God and she's talking about God exalting some and pulling down others. This is very much like that. And I think the early church would have got a lot of their ideas to, uh, in in the case of Mary's song, repeat that theological theme. Let me read 1 Samuel 2 to you. It's in three sections and we're going to look at each of those sections in turn after I've read it. Hannah's prayer. It says, And we're going to read 10 verses if you're following it in a a Bible. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him, his, by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes 
and he has them inherit a throne of honour. Do you see the reversals that are going on in this passage, how God raises up, pulls down in this way? For the foundations of the Lord, of the earth are the Lord's. On them he set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, that last two lines in that passage, please note something. There is no king in Israel at this point. Who is the king? Well, it might be prophesying David, but I think this is messianic. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Ultimately, everything culminates in Jesus. And so we have a messianic flavor about this eternal king who over and above every circumstance and world events shouts hope to a lost and dying world. Jesus is shouting hope in spite of what we're seeing on our newsreels. I was really blessed listening to the church pray. There is such a maturity of Christian understanding in this room that God is holy, that God is loving, that God is just, that God is fair, and that people can be swept away in this moment. And the priority of those prayers was that people would be saved. Did you notice that? Because that is the one key kingdom enterprise. It is not something that is the pet theme of the evangelist. God is trying to rescue souls for eternity. That is ultimately what the church is doing. It's the organization that exists, the church, is the organization that exists for those that are not yet its members. And so the proclamation of the gospel was the priority of family church's prayers this morning. And on that, you'd be right on because to bring people into salvation is to bring them under the rule of this eternal king, which is where ultimately all our hope is found. Because there are some, there are some things in life that we just will never understand. And if we start to demonize the Lord because of world events or personal crises, we will miss the one who can help us in our suffering. We will miss the one who can carry us safely to eternity. He's the only one that can help us in our brokenness. Our world is so toxic and turbulent right now, and some people are losing hope. As a pastor, I feel it's right to speak into this global turbulence, particularly in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, whilst I would not want to pontificate about the Ukraine situation, as I'm not an expert on geopolitics, I do want to state what the Bible says on the matter. There is much hope in the pages of Scripture, and it's, actually this hope is found in the throne room of heaven, where perfect love and perfect justice reside. The Bible, against what is, called, against what is natural, calls us to lift our heads and see the world through the eyes of hope. Forgive me for reading. I wanted to pen my thoughts rather than just preach at you. The Bible, against what is natural, calls us to lift our heads and see the world through these eyes of hope with an eternal perspective that houses an understanding of the nature and sovereignty of God. We need to remind ourselves that God is loving, righteous, and just, and he has never abandoned this world to its own chaos. Instead, he moves in the mess to fulfill his own eternal purposes. He is the eternal king of heaven, whom every human being, whether small or great, will one day bow the knee, including Vladimir Putin. 
like a grandmaster chess player, actually more like a supercomputer, God has anticipated every move in human history for every person in every time. He's collated all of this data and created a perfect plan that will birth an eternal paradise for all of his true servants, all to the praise of his eternal glory. Unfortunately, we do not have this grandmaster's complete game plan in our hands, only flashes of his brilliance in scripture. And so we presently live in the tension of the shadows and the sunlight, and now and a not yet kingdom, which has both come and is coming. Using this Bible lens on God's redemptive agenda, we know that some will suffer greatly in this life. Despite the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, whereas others will enjoy great peace and prosperity. Life doesn't seem fair for some in this case, from an earthly perspective, with so much that appears random. Often the rich get richer in this dog-eat-dog world, and morality appears to fall by the wayside, with no apparent consequences for some. This is not true, of course. There will be consequences for every human being, both small and great. God, who sits on the throne of heaven, the eternal king, will one day judge the living and the dead. And he will see a rollout of perfect justice like we couldn't possibly imagine right now. Scripture calls it the day of the Lord. And here's a point, I'm going to stop in a minute. The day of the Lord is predicted in Old Testament prophetic repeatedly. And it is echoed in New Testament prophetic, Peter's writings, for example, in the New Testament. There is a plethora of references to the day of the Lord in Old Testament prophetic. We know it's not yet been fulfilled. Therefore, if that on one example is an example of Old Testament prophetic that is yet to be fulfilled, we need to be humble enough to say, well, whatever, what else is there in Old Testament prophetic that speaks about things that have not yet been fulfilled? I believe there's much. Even in Hannah's language in that prophetic psalm, God's justice on the day of the Lord will be measured perfectly from a holy God that has righteousness and justice as the habitation of his throne. Have you read that in the Psalms? The passage we've read with Hannah and her praise was just laced with the same prophetic understanding. And essentially, church, it explores this idea of the powerful and the powerless, which many of us can relate to. It contrasts Almighty God with frail humanity, and it promotes worship, humility, and holy fear of the Lord, which is our ongoing imperative as human beings. Finally, it points to an eternal king that will one day be exalted. I wanted to prefix it with that reading before I start preaching and teaching on the three points. I hope you were able to listen in then at some of the rationale behind all of this. Three sections. Can we go to the next slide, please? I want to talk about the powerful and the powerless in verses 1 to 3, the rising and falling, could call that the humbler and the humble, but I've called it the rising and falling, earthly thrones and the eternal throne. And I'll try and get through that if I can. So the power, sorry, power and powerlessness, the powerful and the powerless. Verses 1 to 2 says, and Hannah's prayer was this, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Did you notice Hannah's language speaks about how great and good God is? And is not centered 
on how amazing Hannah is to have a child. Now, at the center of that idea is a picture of a woman who was powerless, whom God in his grace has given power to do something she couldn't do by herself. He's provided a child, and she is absolutely thrilled with God's gift. But her rejoicing and her celebration is not in the fact that she has a son, nor is it in the fact that she's been a mother. Her rejoicing is solely in those first two passages, in God and who he is. You see, this is what suffering will do to you. There are people in this church who've suffered tremendously. And it's right that one writer said, through suffering, you become bitter or better. Hannah had borne the fruit of suffering and produced a clarity on life that understood that the Lord was great and she wasn't. That the Lord was worthy of praise. That the Lord was entirely wonderful. She'd got the memo. She'd become aware of her frailties. And it had humbled her and made her dependent on God. And you know, when you meet someone with a, a precious spirit, and there'll be loads in this room with that, who's been through many, many trials in life, and you see that they still have a sweetness on God. In fact, gro- they've grown in their sweetness on God. It's because they became better and not bitter. Is because they pressed into the Lord in their moment of suffering. They acknowledged and realized their frailties and they recognized that God was everything. Do you see that we have to look on life, whether it be this, this, this invasion of Ukraine or anything that's going on post-COVID in our world and see through eternal eyes. We have to see in the light of eternity. We have to see what God's end game is. God's endgame is not even in that which I spoke about in terms of Israel and the great war at the end of the ages. God's endgame is the praise of his glory. That God is the end point for man. A lot of people um, are so unfamiliar with the Lord that they're not delighted about where they're going. You see, many of us, this is why Jesus says in Luke 21... When these things start to happen, you can look up because your redemption's drawing near. And he's, he's saying, he actually says, straighten up and look up, your redemption's drawing near. How would anyone want to do that if they were fearful about what was transpiring in the world? You see, what has happened there for the one Jesus is speaking about is they've been made perfect in love. Have you read that in John's writings? Says anyone who fears has not been perfected in love, has not been made perfect in love. When you're looking at the lens of the world we live in today, if you're fearful and troubled, it's okay to be heartbroken. I wept when I watched the news yesterday, preparing blood bags for those Ukrainians that were dying. This is heavy stuff. It's not nice to watch, is it? I've seen, I mean, we've been hardened by news reports since I've been a kid. Seeing that, I've never seen anything like the, what things that are going on now on the news. And with the advance of technology, to almost see everything. Seeing from people's windows the bombs being dropped through their smartphone. It's, we see more clearly now than we've ever done because of technology, and it breaks your heart watching the news. But whatever is coming on mankind to make the hearts faint, as Jesus said, Jesus said many people's hearts will fail them because of fear in the last days. He's in the middle of saying that, saying, but you can look up. He says, you can straighten up 
and you can look to heaven and you can rejoice because your redemption's drawing near. Now, why would you do that if you were afraid? People who look up and straighten up and gaze up and say Maranatha are those who've been made perfect in love. The Bible says in 1 John, there is no fear in love. It doesn't say there is only a little fear. It says there's no fear in love. And one of our problems as Christian followers of Jesus is we don't have a knowledge of God's love for us and we're afraid of the future. And part of that is that we are self-worshippers. We've not been crucified with Christ. We've not taken up our cross and followed him. We've not abandoned our own self-interest. The minute we do that, Jesus says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. The day we lay our life down at the cross is the day we really start living. And we find the one who brings peace to our heart. But pain postures us in an understanding of our frailty, and that frailty makes us dependent on God. I think about C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, and he puts it like this. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Can you hear the megaphone going off at the moment? All over the world. Do you hear God shouting to his creation? <laughs> you might say, well, how has God got anything to do with this? Scripture is full of the idea. Ezekiel 38 is an example of one of them. Habakkuk 1 is an example of the other one, where God is literally involved in raising up rogue nations. Figure that one out. Some of you are like, I'm going to have to go and do some Bible study now because that's abhorrent. And you, get a, and you get offended at God, just like Habakkuk did. He says, aren't you a holy God? What are you doing? I, Habakkuk 1.5 says, look among the nations and watch. Habakkuk, watch. I will work a day in your, a work in your day that you wouldn't believe even though it's told to you. Not because he's prophesying revival, which I've heard that scripture used about revival. It's nonsense. It's bad understanding of the Bible. Because God is saying, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. He even says it clearly in the text. They are a ruthless people. Why are you doing this, Lord? Why are you doing this? Because God is the God who reverses history and turns kings in his own hands. That in moving in the mess, he has to move the chess pieces in a way that we couldn't possibly understand. We're not God. He does not delight in evil. He does not delight in war. He does not delight in the suffering of others. Even the Bible says that God doesn't even delight in the death of the wicked. So let's not demonize the Lord when he uses rogue, station, rogue nations and states to fulfill his purposes. Maybe it's just that the world is deaf to their creator. And also, as I said at the beginning of this, God is engineering it for an end time climax, which will glorify his son in all eternity. Okay, so we've, we are on a big canvas with all of this, and we're not going to possibly understand what God is up to on a global scale, on a time-space continuum, but God is on the throne. That's what we need to know above all of this. God is on the throne. In the, the loss of life that we're seeing in this season, in the almost apocalyptic loss of life, whether it be through disease or war and so forth, we're seeing the truths of Scripture hammered home to our hearts again that all people are like grass.
And their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's also like that scripture that says, you're just a vapor. New Testament, not Old Testament. Today, tomorrow, James says, you say this, we'll go and go to such a city, we'll spend there, we'll engage in business, we'll make a profit. You know, the big life plan, the 10-step plan, you know. I've got it sorted, Lord. I've got my life plan sorted. I'm going to get married at this age. I'm going to have my business. And then when I've made enough money, maybe I'll serve the church a little bit as a hobby on the side. No. It says all such boasting is evil to Christians. Instead, says James, half-brother of the Lord, half-brother of the Lord. Instead, we should say if the Lord wills. That's a life that's surrendered to the Lord. That's the life that's taken up the cross and followed the Lord. That's a true disciple of Jesus. Did you notice the psalm that Justin read was all about those who boast and are proud versus those who trust in their God in spite of what they face in life? Can we have a look at the next slide? I remember in Lock, forgive the terrible beard, and it was throwing it down. You might be able to see it on our jacket and the dog soaked but we're on top of Billinge Hill in lockdown. We went for a walk and a pray. And you can just about see that it was completely foggy. I could think of further examples back when I did Duke of Edinburgh and so on. But this was the most recent one. We went up to the top of Billinge Hill and we literally couldn't see in front of our own hands. It was kind of like, I could just about see your dog and I could just about see your coat. But we couldn't see very much. The fog was that there. Then we got down to the car park at church when we'd done our prayer walk and the fog lifted. This is what the scripture is pointing to about human life. It says people are just like a vapor. Such an encouraging word, brother. I'm loving this. It's just going to go home really happy now. But this is Bible truth. And in knowing this truth, it should posture our life in a position of dependence on the Lord, not self-exaltation. It should posture ourselves under that Mindset of whatever the Lord wants, I will do it. Not what do I want to do, but what does God want me to do? Jesus quite clearly says in Matthew's gospel, these are the ones that get saved, those that do not practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is living your own way against God's leader. But in that same passage, Jesus says, the ones who get saved are the ones who knew him, knew him relationally and obeyed their master. And this is, I hope this is challenging on us all to have a reset in this moment when the world is receiving a megaphone shout from heaven about the frailty of life, that we would turn our eyes towards Lord, not just turn to prayer for Ukraine, but turn our hearts fully to the purposes of God and his kingdom. Because there's no such room for boasting for the Christian believer in what they're going to be and do. We should say, what does the Lord want to do with my life? Jesus is the Lord of my life. I heard one preacher say when I was a kid, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And I think that remains to be true. Verse 1 and 2, we need to move on for the sake of time. Indirectly ask us, what are you boasting about, church folk? What are you boasting in? Penaniah's boast in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel was in what she'd done in her strength, in her achievements in verse 6 of chapter 1. Hannah's boast... Unlike Penanias was in the Lord, her unbridled joy and true delight was in him. And here is the first piece of instruction. We go to the next slide, please. Here is the first piece of instruction about how to find hope in the turbulent world that we live in from this passage. Hope 
listen to me, is found in the enjoyment of God alone. It removes the temporal mindset of this world's troubles. Jesus has already said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. And it sets our focus on eternal realities. Hope and joy come from a heavenward focus. It's the correct alignment for all human beings. And it's actually living according to design because the Bible says in Colossians 1, everything was made, including you and me, everything was made by God and for God. And in this case, when we think about Vladimir Putin, power is an illusion. Power is given to people for a short reason to fulfill mysterious divine purposes. The Babylonians that I mentioned in Habakkuk 1 were eventually overtaken by another culture and, and, and empire. God, in truth, according to scripture, turns the cogs of human history. And such knowledge enables us to posture ourselves correctly, giving room for hope and joy rooted in eternal perspective. Simple hope, simple joy in the Lord, who is trustworthy, who is good, who is righteous, who is holy. We don't need to carry it all. Some of us feel like we almost need to carry the world in our prayer life. And if we, if we possibly, and it's really important to intercede, don't get me wrong, but if we possibly drop the world, world in prayer, the world is screwed. Forgive the language. I believe in the imperative and the importance of praying, but I also know that God who sits on the throne is able to hold the whole world in his hands and is bringing about his divine purposes on this planet in a wonderful way out of a wonderful and righteous heart. So much of this world's mess we will not fix, even through prayer. God will often allow a shaking that we do not understand. You know that's true even if you don't like it. You know that you've pressed into prayer and you knew what you thought God should do and he didn't do it. That doesn't change the righteousness of God, the holiness of his character, his justice and his perfect will. God is good all the time. When we do not understand this should give way to simple faith and trust in God, which is actually pure gold. Eternity is coming and this eternal king will have his way no matter what mankind does to thwart his righteous plans. Putin is a pawn on the world stage. Some people would see him as a king. He's a pawn. There are principalities and powers, ancient demonic evil that try to forward their agenda on planet Earth. These people are puppets to the enemy. And God will deal with Putin in his time. I remember praying into the night when, when America had the recent elections. I literally prayed till, and I don't mean this to for itself, but I was concerned about America. Prayed till about four in the morning for America. Now, when you press into God like that and show your concern about something, he starts to talk to you about it. I saw the riots on Capitol Hill happen in my mind's eye before they'd happened. It did. I inferred it on Facebook. I didn't share it in detail. I didn't want to appear like one of those weird prophets that think they know everything. But I saw it. I also saw Donald Trump falling through an egg timer. There were two scenes with Trump. He was sat on uh, the Lincoln Memorial on a throne, and then suddenly I saw him fall through an egg timer. I didn't know the Lincoln Memorial faced the legal high courts in America. He was looking at the high courts. God was trying to communicate to me what he already knew would go down. 
What am I saying to you here is that God turns the cogs of human history. And God raises up and he pulls down. Daniel 2.21 says, God changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Let me say this on account of verses 3 to 5. When we're thinking about rising and falling, and we'll read it again in a minute. Pride always leads to falling. Haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 16, 18. It is a universal principle. That's why in the passage I'm about to read, that's why in Psalm 31, God warns against boasting in your achievements in life. Because it it is not about us. I was discussing with my son the other day. He said, Dad, I don't ever seem to get tired. He was on his ring fit this morning doing exercise and... He said, you know, I said, use it for the Lord. He said, you know, I just, I just you remember when I broke my toe down, I just carried on. And he's like t- telling me like, he's, I said, Lewis, if, if anything like that is from, you know, if you, if you really are that sort of guy that like tunnel recovers quickly. So that's a gift from God. And it's never about you. And you must use it for God. And so I had this conversation about everything I am as a human being was made for the praise of his glory, not for our own self-glory. Are you still with me, church? Verses, well, there's two that are. Verses three to five, the rising and falling. We could call this the humbler and the humble. The verses we read were, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is God who knows and by him, and we can console ourselves with this, by him deeds are weighed. He's weighing what's going on in Ukraine right now. He is watching the prideful. He is watching the self-interested. He is watching the sinner. And he will deal with this. He may even deal with it swiftly. I haven't seen in the spirit how it's going to work. But God is at work in the mess. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. Do you see how God is the great reverser of fortunes? Prideful human existence, that vapor human existence, will one day bow the knee before Jesus Christ. I think we need to reorientate our priorities as Christian people because quite often we've bought into the world's lie that what we have in terms of our education and our professional achievements, and God's with you in that. Don't get me wrong, God is pleased with you if you progress yourself and you work hard in life. But if that is an end in itself and something that you take praise for, you've missed God. I think one example, and I'm I'm facing this as a parent, when we're pulled in so many directions to put our kids, you know, you need to be good at astrophysics and Uh, Syriocoptic and gymnastics for the England team and all this business where you're trying to say, go on, get involved in everything, be amazing, be the best human you can be. And parents become this taxi service for Jesus. And one of the things we're missing in all of this is, is the question, are we raising our kids in the Lord? I don't mean to hurt anyone. I don't mean to trample on anyone in their busyness. And I'm not thinking of anyone in our church. But the reality is, if we don't 
lead our kids to Christ and disciple them, we failed. Rainer Bonnke said that. He said, if I lead the world to Jesus and don't lead my kids to Christ, I've failed. Now, some people are going to find that hard to swallow, but I believe that we have to make that our priority. Now, if your child is away from the Lord, the Lord is able to save people. His arm's not short that he cannot save, and there is no one too far from his reaching. But what I'm trying to do is a reset of priorities towards praying your kids through. Believe in the Lord to save you. A lamb is for the household, not just for you. So if your child is away from God or not a Christian yet, don't give up. That is your priority on this. While you have breath in your lungs, pray that one thing that your child will be saved. It's more important than anything. You know that whether you like the way I presented this or not. It is more important than anything. God is the great reverser and wants us to recognize that everything we have and everything we do is for the Lord. Finally, earthly thrones and the eternal throne. The Lord brings death and makes alive, verse 6. The Lord brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, the Messiah in my understanding, and exalt the horn of his anointed. In summary, that passage seems to suggest oppose the Lord and die. Surrender to the Lord and live. And I'm talking, obviously, in a major way, in terms of eternal realities. Oppose the Lord and die. Surrender to the Lord and live. Let's put it this way. Prideful humanity says it can live without its creator. Rescued humanity knows that it needs its creator. Prideful humanity says it can live without its creator. Rescued humanity knows that it needs its creator. Do you see the difference I, with an evangelist's heart, have been in situations where I have discussed the gospel with unbelievers, and there are some that Jesus describes as people of peace who are receptive and open. There are other people who you watch them flinching, and you're wondering whether you've offended their demons or whether they're just hiding from God. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Some people run from the gospel. They run from the light of Jesus. And it's so important that we as Christians um, acknowledge the need of the creator for all people and make our priority to win people. Not be ashamed. I, I know it was preached last week from Tannel that we've got to prioritize teaching people, mentor people. I do believe that. I think Tannel's word was brilliant in all of its forms. But I think that we must have the gospel at the center of our enterprise. The power of God to salvation is, whether we understand it or not, whether it's something that we like to deliver and carry ourselves is our priority in this season for all who are away from God. Now, I am going to close on slightly more um, prophetic stuff. 
because I want you to understand what's going to come. And I hope it will humble us. I hope if you've heard anything in all of this, that we need to get close to Jesus and live entirely for him in this life. Because he's coming. He's banging on the door. The, the signs of the end of the age are rolling in front of us. My son and his cousin had two apocalyptic dreams, and they were the same dream about the return of the Lord. And there was stuff in there that my son would not know about Revelation, but he told me about them. And I'm thinking, God, you're speaking to a child. Jesus is speaking because he wants us to get ready to make the bride ready. At the start of this week, there were noises muted of a potential World War III with the escalating situation in Ukraine. Of course, this alarmed me, and so I prayed. I didn't feel as I prayed that there was going to be a nuclear exchange uh, from the platform of a kind of modern Cold War. Instead, I believe that God will allow this war to go so far before he places the pause button on events. I had a dream on Monday night, which was about the escape. There were two running away from a gang of thugs, and one escaped, and uh, the other one um, didn't. And I wondered, when I meditated on this, and happy to be wrong, whether that was the east of Ukraine versus the west, and that one would suffer more than the other. And we've seen that roll out on the news this week. Either way, whatever it is, I do not believe the scaremongering that's going on that we're going to end up into an apocalyptic end of days exchange of nuclear weapons. I do not believe in this moment the bush button will be pushed. That said, I believe it's important to understand that we are living in such significant days. That Roche, as I've said earlier, in Ezekiel 33, and I encourage you to read Ezekiel 38 and 39, Daniel 7, and other portions of Zechariah where you see these end-time flavors. Ultimately, Ezekiel 38 and 39 point to a time when there'll be a great war in the last days that will culminate in a, in a global awakening of people and a returning of Israel to the Lord, which also echoes Romans 11, 25 to 32, where in that way all Israel will save, the deliverer will roar out of Zion. The people will turn to the Lord. That was always God's agenda to make the Jews jealous because of his treatment of the Gentiles. That's what Paul writes in Romans 9 through to 11. I believe that's the climax to that letter and not a strange interruption in Paul's teaching on salvation and the Spirit. I believe that Paul breaks out into his praise at the end of Romans 11 because he's saying, oh, the wideness of the greatness of God's plan, so lofty that I cannot attain. He's adoring the Lord because somehow this guy who was quite the most incredible Christian I've ever seen in world history is recognizing that God will bring world events to that climax where humanity will experience a great awakening, particularly in, in Israel. I felt it certainly when I was in there. But I don't believe we're there yet. Israel will have her defenses down, according to Ezekiel 38, which I know I've been to Israel. People are wandering around with guns on the back. It says that it won't be a walled city. Now, when, when has that happened? In recent times. But there seems to be this picture in Old Testament prophetic that Israel will abandon its defenses, and at that juncture they will be attacked on all fronts and God will miraculously rain down fire from heaven, which hasn't happened, and deal with Israel's enemies. And in that way, he'll be glorified and the nation will turn, perhaps as Romans 11 says, to the Lord. Why am I saying this? 
I'm saying this because it's very easy in this time to get lost in what people are saying on social media and believing now we're in the end of days where it's going to be a nuclear holocaust. I do not believe that. It doesn't take away the seriousness of what's going over in, in Ukraine and Russia. But it does seem to be a rehearsal to me of the rising of this great Russian bear, which Daniel speaks about raising on one side, coming out of its cave. And eventually that will be, that Rosh nation will be the northern nation that attacks Israel. That will happen. It might not be in our lifetime. But with that knowledge, what do you think the response of the Christian should be? That God, that, that we are seeing something that seems to be a precursor for an end of days scene being played out. Shouldn't it awaken us to a lifestyle of fully devoted discipleship to Jesus? Shouldn't it awaken us to a prayer life that's on another level to what we've had before? Shouldn't it help us abandon the ballast of, of the things in our life that don't really matter that much? Shouldn't it cause us to get right with one another? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. With the advent of a judgment coming for Christians as well as non-Christians, for we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, isn't it important to get right with God? Can I have the worship team up? We're just going to sing a last song. I believe that it's so important, let's just review what I've said, to know that God is turning the cogs of human history. And it's not all independent rogue nations and despotic leaders. That actually, biblically, God is in this, even though we can't see it. And that God is bringing the world to a climax where Jesus is glorified. And the only kingdom that will last is Jesus' kingdom. And because of that, we must tether in with this eternal throne of Jesus and advance his kingdom agenda on the earth as our priority. Is that, can you hear that? I'm trying to lead to. All the other stuff I've said about the end times and Russia and China, because the king in the east is mentioned, it should be there in our thinking. We should know about it, but it shouldn't fill us with fear. If it fills you with fear, you've probably not been made perfect in love. Because remember what I said, Jesus said we should be looking up when these things happen, straightening up because our redemption is drawing near. And that should excite you, not terrify you. Okay? Hope you heard the word of the Lord in that. Let's worship God. I know it's not an easy message, but I wanted to teach the Bible because I think the world events that are happening now are clearly rooted in Scripture. Amen.